You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 14th of November, 2018, on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Daniel Bage. On today's show... We will deliver Brexit and the United Kingdom is leaving the European Union on the 29th of March 2019. We dig into the latest on a draft Brexit deal on a day when British Prime Minister Theresa May has been trying to sell the text to her divided cabinet. My guests Matthew Green and Joy Ladico will be discussing Brexit and the day's other top stories, including Amazon is opening two new bases on the U.S. East Coast and will be the beneficiary of some massive tax breaks. Is this a model for how cities can deal with mega corporations, which many are desperate to attract? And Sweden's politicians have failed to break the country's political stalemate two months after a general election. Is the far right dictating the terms? All that plus, we're not just about how much a dollar costs today, we also crack open the debate on how much a kilogram actually weighs. That's all to come on Midori House with me, Daniel Bache. So welcome to Midori House. My guests this evening are journalist and author Matthew Green and Joy Ladico, columnist and editor at the London Evening Standard. Welcome both to the program and back to Midori House. Late yesterday, we learned after months of tough negotiations that Britain and the EU have reached agreement on the terms of the Brexit divorce. The 500-page draft or around there has been picked over today by Conservative cabinet ministers and MPs because, of course, Prime Minister Theresa May will need the support of her very divided cabinet and then Parliament, and oh yes, the 27 EU member states as well. Uh, Joy, what is the latest? What have we learned today on on <laughs> on, on how much we've learned from this, de- this well, text? Well, we, we've not learned a huge amount. Uh, we uh, basically the text has been shown essentially in, in private to the cabinet. There have mm. been some leaks that have come through the EU ambassadors, uh, and what we now know or we think we know, is that uh, various very contentious issues like fisheries, uh, we're going to end up sticking with the EU fishery policy, we're going to end up sticking with the uh, EU state aid policies, um, which means no particular subsidies for particular businesses, and we may end up with some form of their employment rights as well in order to carry on. Mm. We also know that the Cabinet is feeling um, a little bit mutinous about this. There are certain Brexiteers who are saying this is going to be an unacceptable deal. At the moment, they are locked in a cabinet meeting that was meant to last for three hours. It's now gone on for five hours. There was meant to be a statement outside Downing Street by the Prime Minister around now. At the moment, it's just a, a microphone standing there and nobody there. So we can only imagine that there are some pretty hefty arguments going on over whether the cabinet can agree. And interestingly, there's one uh, cabinet member called Penny Mordant who is saying that the cabinet Cabinet should have a free vote on this rather than have cabinet mm. collective responsibility. Now, in many ways, this was David Cameron's downfall when the original referendum came along. He allowed his cabinet to be free with their own opinions. And he found uh, Michael Gove, who he thought he was going to be loyal, uh, peeling off along with Boris Johnson to go and lead the Leave campaign. Uh, Matthew, what do you think uh, Theresa May's role is in in this today? As you say, as as we've heard just from Joy there, you know, it's going to be really hard to sort of wrangle a cabinet. Does she even try to do that? How does how does she move forward there? Well, it was interesting, wasn't it, that Joe Johnson resigned 
just at the end of last mm. week and said <laughs> we're heading into the worst crisis since World War Two, and the whole thing is a kind of theatre of the absurd. Uh, my quote, not his, but I mean that's obviously what's taking place. Mm. I mean, we're just watching a crisis of British governing system in the early twenty first century, aren't we? We, mm. we just cannot cope with this. This deal isn't going to fly. Parliament won't pass it. The cabinet's going to fall to pieces. We we, we cannot deal with Brexit. And, you know, the idea that the government is some sort of benevolent institution guiding us towards a hopeful future has mm. been exploded by this whole spectacle, if, if, if anyone was ever clinging to that illusion. So I think we've got very dark times ahead. We're told between 400 and, and 600 pages. So we'll split it in the middle. Other 500-page epics include Moby Dick, The Idiot, <laughs> The Iliad, and Fifty Shades I, I know of Grey I which I'd prefer well. to read. Right. <laughs> Uh, but, Joy, how much have, have the cabinet ministers actually been able to dig into well, this? Well, um, you, you can't do 500 pages yeah. in intense detail overnight. I mean, they will have seen it yesterday, mm. and that's about it. So they are being pushed into, at the last minute, agreeing to this deal. And there's clearly some heels have been dug in saying, actually, we don't agree with this and we don't agree with that. And Theresa May's had you know, foresight of this document, and they have not. And you can understand why, if you're put in that position... Um, and the cabinet divides almost down the middle between right. Brexiters and Remainers. Both sides will have an argument about almost every point in it. Um, this cabinet meeting today may go on and on and on. Mm. Well, I mean, the Brexiteers came out last night and, and they seem, you know, they're going to oppose this no matter what. And before maybe they even got a, a real look yeah. at this. Right? We, we, yeah, we, we've sort of been on resignation watch all day. Mm. Now, there are two camps of Brexiteers. There are those within the cabinet um, who are people like Liam Fox and Penny Mordaunt. Uh, and then there are essentially the uh, European Research Group, the ERG, led by Jacob Rees-Mogg, and Boris Johnson attaches himself to them, and David Davis will go out and bat for them as well. And they're the outsiders who are kind of beating their chests and mm. saying, this is outrageous. They matter when it comes to a parliamentary vote, which is further down the line, which is probably December, and they are the ones who can gather some troops and actually vote against their own party to knock this out. Um the, the trouble is that, you know, Labour may well knock it out because the the opposition, because they've said, well, it's got to meet six tests. Yeah. And let me tell you that they, they won't meet those six tests. So six tests are almost created in order for them to be able to vote against mm. it. Uh, and the DUP, which is the which is the governing party in Northern Ireland around which all this hinges, are also beginning to kick up rough. So Theresa May can get through this cabinet today. She may have a few resignations, but, you know, we've got, you know, she's had quite a lot of resignations. Yeah. We're at the beginning to get bored of the resignations. The next really big stage is Parliament. However, I wouldn't write her off. She has an extraordinary ability just to hmm. weave her way through. Uh, and uh, we've been talking about her downfall for a very long time now, and she's still there. Uh, Matthew, on that point, perhaps, do you, do you see this as a, as a make or break for Theresa May? Is, is it that moment in her career or is it all downhill from her? Uh, in a way, I think the fate of Theresa May is relevant in all this because hmm. the, the question, what's at stake here is so much bigger than the fate of all these politicians and so much of the problem that has been revealed by Brexit is the way that we talk about politics, the way we cover politics, the way we write about politics is focused on this revolving door of personalities, most of whom are frankly incredibly damaged individuals who were playing out all kinds of unresolved psychological conflicts on the national stage yeah. and those of us who have some sort of degree of self-awareness and uh, are trying to become more conscious citizens are totally aghast on, on all sides at the moment and and i just wonder how long it can be before those of us like me personally who have not particularly been politically active in the uk cannot band together and come up with some sort of 
solution that is different from what we're looking at. Because, I, I mean, we're talking about the minutiae of what's happening today. But if we just step back and look at the big picture, this is an absolute calamity for this country. Interestingly, the one person who is not involved in that kind of great big psychodrama that went on around David Cameron and his uh, private school educated yeah. chums was Theresa May. I mean, she was stood apart from it. And she is, again, with this but, warring but look, cabinet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's almost like a sort of, you know, it's like a jury in front of her. Yeah. Uh, you know, and she's just trying to bring them all to one conclusion. Hmm. But she's a remainer. I mean, she knows that what she's doing is wrong for the country. I mean, how can she turn up to work every day and do that and keep bleating on about this being the will of the people. I mean, well, I, it's I, like I, living I, in some sort of fascist nightmare. I have, I have a sort Britain. of, I have a sort of, you know, pet private theory that Theresa May will perform the ultimate sacrifice. She's leading us to the conclusion of Remain mm. by bringing us to such a sort of I, rot, I think rotten that, deal. I think she could go on YouTube and do a, I mean, do a kind of address to the nation and say, look, the 56% we saw in that poll on the Channel 4 documentary a couple of weeks ago. Get out in the street. I mean, are you going to see 750,000 uh, leavers on the streets of London? I don't think so. Well, no, I mean, mm. they can't actually you know, they can't bring, get bring a rally. People. I mean, we have, she, Theresa May, you know, the question of should we have another referendum? Could we, yeah. Should we have a referendum on the deal itself? It's been coming up. We did have, you know, possibly a million people, nearly a million people on the streets. Uh, there have been huge petitions for it. Theresa May had always said, I'm never going to have a snap election. She actually ended up having a snap yeah. election <laughs> last year. So she could at this point turn around. There is also a point where and her strategists within number 10 begin to just see a dead end everywhere. And the only thing you at that point can do is go back to the country mm. and say, well, look, you voted once without knowing what was on offer. Now we can show you what's on offer. Um, and it produces one of two conclusions. Uh, if the Remainers lose, mm. Article 50 has, is, has been triggered. The clock is ticking. We'll be out. There won't be time for another go. That's it. Remainers are defeated. If the Remainers win, the Brexiteers lose, we can go back to Brussels with a much strengthened hand um, because we at this point say, look, this is how close uh, the UK came to leaving. These are the issues we have about perceptions, about migration, about um, uh, f free movement of people, about industries being impacted by you know, the internationalism of the EU. Shall we go and talk about these again mm. more seriously? And it may actually have a very beneficial effect. It won't quite answer the question of sovereignty, but it will bring into focus many of the problems of the EU. Mm. It seems, Matthew, a, a lot still won't be decided then. Particularly, I'm thinking about the rights of EU citizens. That's going to yeah. be, uh, you know... But the, the stuff we're looking at today yeah. is just details. I mean, yeah. we've not got anywhere near talking about a trade agreement or yeah. any of the actual substantive issues. The, these are just things that no one even thought about during mm. the referendum campaign. Well, this is meant to be the basis for what happens next. So you're right. going to have a future trade agreement. And the idea is that what is being agreed today uh, as the kind of this... It's so reasonable about this whole thing. It's so irreasonable. I mean, don't don't you look at it and just throw your yeah, hands no, up a, in despair. I'm, a, I'm an absolute ardent Remainer, uh, <laughs> but I'm, I'm. But you know, ultimately, you have to persuade the Brexiteers that then we may have to think again. We, we yeah. can't the persuade Remainers. the Brexiteers. We need to outflank and outmaneuver them. <laughs> I, think, I think that's the only solution. <laughs> that's what they've done to us, and I, I hate to say it, but this is politics. It's a rough game. Well, and, um, I think we need to work our way around to a different outcome. I think you know, Aaron Banks is being investigated by um, Robert Mueller. Farage, Farage has just been brought into the frame today. Yeah. Uh, they're falling like flies. Where's Boris? Uh, you know, he's yeah, issued yeah, one I statement mean, on Twitter today. You know, I think you'll find that the generals of that army have disappeared. And this is a point yeah, at which you can yeah. begin to persuade those people that perhaps they will uh, 
their generals were not the best generals. But they do, were not do, going to lead them to the best conclusion. Do you think May has the agility and imagination, though, to see the way the 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 the, the, the kind of tides are turning and shifting at the moment? That's mm. the point. She's such a plodder. I think, I think it's like a wind-up robot you just could plodding say, you along could say to she, the cliff edge. You could say she's a plodder or you could say she's giving space to other people yeah. to try and turn the argument. You, you, you think she's got a, a master plan. I mean, I hope she does. I, I really do. And I, I'm fascinated I, I, I by this theory. I credit, I credit her with a little bit more intelligence than is apparent in her, but perhaps not that much more. <laughs> Anyhow, we shall we shall move it along there. Uh, we turn our attention to the US, where e-commerce giant Amazon will be getting around $2 billion in tax benefits as part of a deal to open two new East Coast offices, one in Queens, New York, the other in Crystal City, that's Arlington, Virginia. 25,000 jobs go to each city, being dubbed Amazon 2 and 3. The Seattle-based company will also open an operations hub, it's calling it, in Nashville. For both Arlington and Queens, Amazon has promised about $2.5 billion in investment and tax revenues over 20 years projected at about $3.5 billion for Virginia, $10 billion for New York State. Governor Andrew Cuomo, who actually offered to change his name to Amazon, is chuffed at this deal, we can say. Amazon uh, been looking at a number of locations. Firstly, are we surprised by where they are landing, Joy? Yes, actually, I was surprised. Mm. Um, so I was in uh, New York. I was a little bit too lazy to go and walk over to this this new site the, uh, last week. Um, but I was surprised that it was being talked about in the New York Times uh, along with the Washington, the mm. Virginia site. Thinking, well, hang on, these are already two major cities. I know the suburbs are quite poor, but they've already got a massive amount of investment and money going through them. And Amazon had launched a competition across the country. There were a huge number of bidders. I knew some of the people who were doing the Detroit bid, which desperately needed something to re, you know, kickstart the city. And Amazon could have done a huge amount for its reputation mm. by doing that. And instead, it went to two cities that perhaps arguably didn't actually need it. Is this then, Matthew, do you think this is this a, an example of corporations trying to do good by going to areas maybe outside of those main cities that could use a little boost or, or did, Isn't that just, the, I, did they just make sense? Well, these places? I, 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 I don't understand. Is the, is the sense that essentially they've gone to an area that's already kind of pretty OK? Joy, you it's good transit it's not you know yeah. it's not a mile away from okay you can find yourself you know a nice house in some pleasant suburbs very nearby yeah. you're not it's, it's not like an urban renewal project somewhere no, that no. could have been completely transformed no, like no. if they'd gone to like Barrow in Finesse or somewhere like yeah. that yeah. which desperately needs some sort of yeah. support and help I mean corporations answer to their shareholders right I mean they are essentially sociopaths. So we can't really expect to have a great deal of benevolence from them, mm. can we? I mean, um, I'm sorry to sound cynical today, no, no, but no. <laughs> I mean, that's the reality, isn't it? It would be mm. wonderful if Amazon paid its fair share in tax and treated its employees like human beings. And it would have been wonderful if they'd located their headquarters in a in a in an area that could have really right. benefited. But Well, I, I've just, I mean, I, after New York, I went to Seattle and saw an area that both benefited and also had become, uh, you know, has got this incredibly t- uh, bad homeless problem, which partly is driven by the kind of tech boom there. Yeah. People turning up thinking that they will end up at least at the beginning of the ladder on the way to that. And there being house prices sort of jumping to the point when yeah. people are being forced out of their homes. Uh, and then Amazon asked to contribute a particular tax to sort out the homeless problem, doing everything mm. they possibly could not to pay it or not to allow it to be passed. So this idea that Amazon turns up and is of a benefit to a city <laughs> is... Um, uh, uh, 
rubbish. And, um, and I'm, I'm yeah. so complicit because I order, I mean, I love ordering things on Amazon. It's terrible, oh, isn't we it? Do. We're all here bleating. Mm. <laughs> well, I mean, Joy brings up an interesting point there. Tech mega companies have long been criticized for skirting taxes as they yeah. do. Uh, does the economic stimulus then in this case make it irrelevant for maybe, let's say, Queens, somewhere like that? I, I don't know. I was just thinking about um, we were talking earlier just about British politicians and their careers, and it's Nick Clegg, isn't it, who's gone to Facebook. work for Facebook yeah. as they is it the glo- glo- head of corporate communications? Yeah. I mean, and he was the one who was bashing them over not paying enough tax. Mm. I mean, let's hope that he's able to exert some influence from yeah. the inside. This is, this is worse than not paying enough tax. <laughs> what they've actually done is they've set up a, a competition uh, nationally and internationally. I was in, uh, uh, you know, even the Canadians were complaining that Toronto hadn't yeah. got it. Uh, so it was, that, it was so open all over the world it wasn't just it wasn't just the US it seemed to be beyond the, their own borders and they were what happened was that every city was offering massive tax breaks mm, right yeah to the point sort of race to the bottom yeah, it's yeah. a race to the bottom so at that point everybody begins to lose and because it's a competition to get them you know more and more money is ploughed into them so the citizens ends up paying for them yeah. going there now I know mm. over the long term in theory they pay back um, well, Andrew Cuomo says nine to one return. That's yeah, his big, well, right? yeah. yeah. Or you could just sort of start out without taking any money from the city at all and mm. just place yourself. You know, it's not like Amazon don't have the financial clout to place themselves in a you know a place without um, the incentives. Well, many cities would love a crack at welcoming Amazon, and and many did have a crack. We mentioned Detroit there. Uh, you know, with these tech giants, it, it all seems to be about what makes sense for them and who is offering the most. Then, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'd love to. I've never been to Silicon Valley. I'd love to go and soak up a bit of the atmosphere, though, in this kind of where you have these billionaire plutocrats who kind of fantasize about building mm. floating island cities and <laughs> prepping for doomsday. And <laughs> I don't know what is going to happen to the rest of us. Mm. Would you be more interested then uh, to see Donald Trump's tax return or Amazon's <laughs> tax return? Uh, haven't the New York Times done a pretty good job of digging up? Donald Trump's tax return yeah. and finding a pretty sorry state of affairs. Mm, Although, well. having said that, I've got two tax returns I need to complete, so yeah. I'm not really in a position to be... Uh, Donald Trump also from fingers. the same part of <laughs> New York, I believe. Well, uh, Rather less, less amount of money involved in mine, I should state. Fair enough. Uh, you, you are listening to Midori House. Here with me, Daniel Bates, Joy Ladico, and Matthew Green. Coming up next, months after a general election, how the far right is hampering efforts for anyone to form a coalition government in Sweden. Mention the name Funkhaus in Berlin and you'll be greeted with excited curiosity or a mysterious smile from those in the know. The former communist broadcasting house got a new lease of life when young musicians hunkered down. Monocle Films set out on a tour of the stunning studios and recording halls. Funkhaus on the same wavelength, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. Welcome back to Midori House. Still with me, Joy Ladiko and Matthew Green. Sweden's parliament has voted against the centre-right leader of the Moderates Party, uh, the Moderates Party becoming the country's new PM. Ulf Kristersson failed to achieve the numbers needed to end the deadlock that's seen politics in the country stagnate since its indecisive general election back in September. The problem, the far-right party, the Sweden Democrats, their gains in September's election have meant that any coalition government would need to accept influence on on policy from the far right. And nobody from Sweden's center right or left uh, wants to do that at this point, it seems. So how long 
can a country go without forming a government? And which countries do coalitions well? Uh, Matthew, what are you seeing here in Sweden? Have you followed this at all? You, you, uh, to, to be honest, you are stretching my grasp of global affairs with the the, Swede- the latest wranglings from the mm. Sweden's <laughs> parliament. <laughs> I have worked in a lot of countries, though, where th- there's been endless coalitions one after another. And yeah. It does tend to be a recipe for kind of paralysis. But at the same time, it, it does blunt the kind of extremist side wing as well. I mean, I don't know how we would have fared. Mm. We had a co- I guess we had a coalition that led to our referendum. But anyway, we've already done that story. F- famously, Belgium, which failed to um, yeah. form its uh, government for 14 months, was I think the, uh, had the, it was the EU country with the, the biggest growth over that mm. particular period. Really? So you don't actually need to have a government to do well. And Sweden's doing fine at the moment without anybody. Although Italy would presumably be the counterexample. Yeah, you could be. Have they actually got a government at all at the moment? Yeah, they do. They're they're, they're doing fine. I mean, Italy sort of lives in a state of chaos. When it's not in a state of chaos, it doesn't know what it's doing. Um, Sweden is a particular mess on the numbers here. So there's a fantastic stat about Sweden, which is that the the Socialist Party, led by Stefan Lufjen, excuse my Mm. um, uh, pronunciation, that party has won every single election or been the the largest party in every single election for the last 100 years. So that's your kind of starting point. Mm. This uh, this time, their vote dropped down to about 30%. Um, and so suddenly, nothing is quite as obvious as it used to be. And so there was a very clear kind of left and right block that is beginning to dissolve. And actually, if you look at what happened in the election in September, not only did the Sweden Democrats jump up by 3 4%, um, so too, too did the left party mm. that itself jumped up. And that is also a Eurosceptic party, and that jumped up by 2%. So the Eurosceptics are actually really big winners. But you look at the maths now, and you can't work out how you can build a government without including the Sweden Democrats, who had 62 seats. So they basically got a sixth mm. of w- what's required. Well, you were actually there to, to follow this uh, this election, Joy. How how far have they come or, or not come? And is it a culture that maybe just isn't that concerned as other countries might be about not having a government? Well, I think they are quite concerned mm. because they have been used to this kind of tick-tock of left and sure. right all along. So this is the first time they've had a kind of serious problem with actually trying to form a government. And um, what they're doing is they're looking at their neighbour, Finland. Now, Finland had the same problem, which is a, a, a seriously right-wing party had done very well in the elections. So they couldn't form a government. So they actually brought that right-wing party in. Um, and it, rather like the way the Liberal Democrats were destroyed in a recent UK coalition, mm. the minute they were brought into government, uh, they collapsed as a party. So they existed naturally yeah. in a state of opposition. And the Sweden Democrats, again, you know, they're, they're anti-immigrant, anti-refugee, uh, anti-EU party. They need to be fighting against the kind of centre bring them in and make them start to do deals and they hmm. may well just dissolve again. That's really interesting on sort of forcing the hand of the, of the, of the party that, that holds the balance. In this case, it's, it's the far right. We've seen this example in, in other European countries as well, Matthew, where the far right sort of gains in, in the votes and then, you know, everyone's trying to court them, but but not not wanting to at the same yeah. time. No, uh, I was chatting to someone, friend from uh, Sweden just a few days ago and just hearing anecdotally about how now open displays of racism are far more common than they would have been hmm. a few years ago. Shocking, actually. She was very disturbed by this trend. And I, obviously we're seeing this trend all over Europe, but deeply disturbing, especially when we have this fantasy about how great all these Nordic countries are. And we're yeah. seeing that kind of shadow now emerging. Except I think um, the Sweden Democrats, we 
we cannot sort of overplay them. We keep t- talking about the far right because they had Nazi roots, but they've moved a long yeah. way from that. So they're they're more like UKIP in the UK, which is right. a, you're kind of so you, right, do, you don't necessarily fascist, you don't necessarily, fascist you don't necessarily, light. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I, would, I would say it's unfair to call them fascists, but you yeah, probably yeah, yeah. don't really want to have a drinks party. If you yeah. have a drinks party, yeah. it'll get you know there'll be some arguments at the end of it, but nobody's sure. going to be kind of goose stepping. Um, so that's why you can actually start talking about the Sweden Democrats actually doing a sort of supply right. and confidence deal with the moderates because they're not like far, far right. Um, but it just it, it's still everybody's going, yuck, we're not going to, we don't mm. want to touch this. Well, the one that keeps coming up for me is, is, is Germany, which also had problems with, with creating a coalition along deadlock, Merkel's sort of grand coalition. Some would see as a model, but is it? It's, it's not really worked out for her there, has it? I guess so. But it's interesting in, the, in Germany, the Green Party has been doing rather right. well, hasn't it? Which is, in, it's interesting to see a party that was, in some respects, as marginalised as the far right in terms of, I mean, certainly in the UK political system, when mm. you think about how few, how how few, how little actual political influence in terms of seats it's ever had. Mm. Um, but yeah, in Germany, it's really, it's kind of encouraging to see that progressive, environmentally conscious party doing better. Mm. If I remember correctly, I think the Greens also jumped in um, Sweden. I may have got that wrong, but it's almost like people are beginning to look for alternatives because they're fed yeah. up with the kind of sort of same old, le- you know, left-right yeah. um, divisions. They're thinking, yeah. well, actually, who can do something more interesting? Yes. How do we shake it up again? Which mm. is also, you know, it- Italy and Five Star. Let's, sure. um, let's, let's think again about how we do politics. Is it interesting uh, then in this time, there's still countries that don't even um, entertain the idea of a coalition? I mean, in Canada, where I'm from, that's just that just doesn't happen. In other countries, it's it is the norm. That's the way things but is work. But co- is that an aspect of the political culture? Or is there an actual rule in the constitution that just the culture, that? right? I mean, in America, look well, at America is is completely divided, right? You're 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 for or against one side or the other. But in other countries, it's like we're going to have to work something out. And some countries have that don't have that culture at all. What shape is your parliament? Do, do they face each other or is it in a semicircle? It's in a big horseshoe, yeah. They it's face in a big each horseshoe, other, yeah. So they could actually do a coalition. There's some natural They spectrum. could do it, yeah. It's always interesting to see where people sit. And there's more space than there is uh, down at Westminster <laughs> as well. Less MPs. But uh, uh, perhaps on that note, we will uh, finally move on to a, another weighty issue, making headlines in France this time. How much does a kilogram weigh? Well, the keepers of the international prototype kilogram, Le Grand K, it's actually called, uh, are the people to ask. The weight by which all other kilograms are measured is kept in a vault below ground at the International Bureau of Weights. I'm not making this up. This is actually true. In the uh, Bureau of Weights and Measures in Paris. But this week, experts are reassuring whether this standard, uh, uh, reassessing rather, uh, whether this standard adhered to since 1889, the same year the Eiffel Tower was completed is really the most efficient or universal way to understand what a kilogram weighs. A liter of water, for example, available worldwide, does pretty much the same job. Uh, Joy, should we be doggedly bound by objects such as this grand K? Uh, what I quite like, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about scales. So if you go to buy uh, clothes in a women's clothes shop, mm. you'll find that every clothes shop has different sizes. And so one shop you'll go in and you'll find you're a 14. You'll think, God, I must have been eating too many buns. The next, you're a 10. You're like, oh, my God, I love this shop. I'm, you know, really thin here. So I kind of think, you know, if we can actually have, if we have to fix a kilogram, that's mm. terrible. But if you had scales manufacturers who could, you know, say, oh, no, you're only weighing uh, 58 kilograms today, you'd sit there and go and buy those scales. So we're being a bit dogged about, hmm. you know, these particular definitions. <laughs> I also like the fact it's the Parisians who are owning this kilo. Right. And the other thing that in the 1880s, 
there was a big argument about where the time start, where the timeline started, and it was Greenwich versus Paris. Mm. And um, Paris said, well, we want to be the holder of the time. We want to be the people who are the arbiter of what goes on. And Greenwich won because we're, the UK had a bigger maritime uh, tradition and so mm. everybody actually looked at our clock. The Parisians stuck. They still used what they called Paris Mean Time for another... Th- think 30 years after <laughs> GMT was universally adopted by everybody. It was yeah. the absolute standard. Always a little bit late, yeah, perhaps. They just, yeah. But they just have to own these things. They just have to own these things. That's really that's really interesting. We create all kinds of these unconventional measures of everyday life as well that are not sort of university uh, universal, a city block, a shot of whiskey. Uh, do you have any favorite units of measure, Ooh, Matthew? That's a good question. I was thinking of hands, of, of horses. Is that done by actual hands? Like that's the, That is the, the unit of measure measuring a horse, right? Who Hands. said it? I, I didn't know one. that. I, uh, that I am totally stumped on. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, how about this? Have, have you ever been caught using the wrong measure for the job? I mean, in, in Canada, for example, we changed the system, but people still use old uh, units of measure such as miles, where it's actually kilometers in Canada. I, I still say feet. To, to say three feet away or six feet away, but in actuality, we should be saying meters well, in Canada. The, when, when the the um, sorry to go back to Brexit, but when mm. the when this <laughs> particular generation of Brexiteers were growing up, people like Boris Johnson were writing stories saying the EU has banned us from using pints, so therefore you're going to have right. to order half a litre of beer in the pub. And this is complete rubbish. You just The pint just had to measure 568 millilitres. It was right. just that we had a standard. Uh, so it gets used, you know, it's, it's quite a politicised uh, thing. So this is the thing about Paris only, you know, the, wanting the meantime. Who owns the, 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 the detail of it kind of matters. And who owns the kilogram kind of matters. Hmm. Well, I'm glad we uh, still own the pint in this country. That is good. And uh, we can we can drink to that. Another edition of Midori House coming to an end. Thank you very much, Matthew Green and Joy Ladico, uh, for joining us here at Midori House. Today's show produced by Tom Hall, researched by Marcus Hippie and Martha Libri, our studio manager, Christy Evans. More music next. And then at 1900, it is The Entrepreneurs with myself. And we'll have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily at 2200 with host Emma Nelson, including the very latest on Brexit. Midori House back tomorrow at the same time, 1800 London time, 1900 in Paris, Joy. I'm Daniel Beige. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye.